So we are now in our third week in our series on the story of Abraham. And this week we have a delightfully weird story to look at. Uh, We're going to be reading from Genesis 15. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can start turning there now. You you might notice that we're actually skipping ahead two chapters from where we were last week. Last week we were in Genesis chapter 12. And that is on purpose. I, it's hard for me to do this because I like to be a completist and do everything. But uh, I realized that if we did all of Abraham's story, we would be, we would be here for a while. So uh, we're not going to read every verse as we go through this series. Uh, one, because it's long. And two, there's certain passages in Scripture. They're important. They're valuable. But they're hard to preach, if you know what I mean. Uh, So I encourage you, don't skip over these parts yourself. Take the time to read them. Uh, Go back, look at the parts we were not looking at on Sunday morning. They're still important. You can still learn from them. Uh, But on Sunday mornings, we're going to be focusing on certain highlights. Now here's a quick summary of what we're skipping over in uh, Genesis 13 and 14. Um, Two major things happened to Abram after his cowardly behavior that we looked at last week. Uh, Two things that he really doesn't deserve, but that God graciously gives him anyway. Now, I'm going to be talking about Abraham and using the the name Abram. If you remember, uh, Abraham gets his name, his name is changed Abraham later in the story. God gives him that name because Abram means father, but Abraham means father of many. Okay, so God gives him this new name in order to emphasize just how much of a father he's going to be. Abram is daddy. Abraham is big daddy. He's not big daddy yet, so I'm going to be saying Abram. All right, so two things happen to Abram in chapters 13 and 14. One, Abram becomes very rich, very rich by ancient Near Eastern standards. He's got lots of tents, lots of livestock, lots of... Uh, silver and gold and servants. He's doing very well for himself. In fact, there's one point where it says that Abram has 318 trained men in his household. So you might have an idea in your head, as I did for a long time, that when Abram is moving through Canaan, it's just like him and his wife and maybe a few donkeys or something like that. 318 men are in his household. Now, none of these men are his descendants, uh, but they are people who who work for Abram, and who are in a mutually beneficial relationship uh, to be in his household with him. So Abram is a wealthy man. And then two, Abram becomes a war hero. I bet you didn't know Abram was a war hero. You don't usually think of him that way, do you? Um, Abram finds himself in the middle of a conflict where there's an alliance between four kings, and they're attacking an alliance of five kings. And Abram gets involved because his nephew Lot gets captured and taken away by the alliance of four kings. So he gathers together those 318 men, and they go to save Lot, which is pretty cool. And not only do they save Lot, but they end up defeating the the alliance of four kings. So Abram, uh, Abram becomes a war hero. He is a rich war hero. He's doing very well. And what I want us to recognize here is that this is a fulfillment of part of what God already promised to Abram. You might remember that when we looked at the call of Abram, 
uh, God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And, and that's what's going on here, right? Anybody who aligns themselves with Abram ends up being blessed. That's why his household is so huge, because everyone that ends up working for him is like, wow, this is great. We're doing really well. And at the same time, those who oppose Abram end up on the losing side. So part of what God promised is being fulfilled, is presently being fulfilled. But there's a big part of God's promise that is still unfulfilled, which is that Abram still has no offspring. Um, you might remember that when Abram was called and given his initial promises, he was 75 years old. And the text doesn't say exactly how old he is at this point in the story, but he's older than 75, right? And still, this promise has not been fulfilled. He is childless, no offspring at all. He's got a huge household with tons of servants, but no children. And God had promised that a great nation would come from him. In order to have a great nation come from, you, from somebody, you need descendants, and he still doesn't have them. So in this passage we're about to look at, God comes and he, he meets Abram in a special way, and he gives him encouragement. So again, this is uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Let's say a quick prayer before we get into this. Lord Jesus, this is a very strange passage, uh, especially for our modern-day ears. And I pray that as we read it, your Holy Spirit would bridge the divide between the culture of the past and our culture in the present and help us to see uh, how beautiful this story is. Uh, open our eyes to be able to, to see it and open our ears to, to hear it and understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, back in those days, if you didn't have children, it was a common practice to give your estate to one of your valued servants. And so Abram is just assuming, hey, I'm getting really old. I know you made a promise, but I guess your promise was just that my descendants are going to be through my servants, right? So my estate is going to go to Eliza of Damascus, he says. But God reminds him, that's not actually what I promised. I have something different in mind. Continuing in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Hopefully you notice that, that picture that I put up to represent our series uh, before every sermon that is supposed to be representative of this. Right? It's the starry night sky. God brought Abram out and said, look up at that starry night sky. See all those stars that you can't even count. This is what your offspring are going to be like. This is how numerous they're going to be. Continuing on, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. 
But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? It's a good question, right? It's basically, how can I really know, God, that what you're saying to me is true? Now, you might think that God, being God, would say, well, I'm God because I say so, right? But that's actually not what God says. Um, he does something much more interesting than that. I said things were going to get weird. This is where they get weird, so buckle up. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. All right, so... What in the world was that? What just happened there? Cutting up animals, thick and dreadful darkness, a floating fire pot and torch. What? Well, let's remember how this started, right? Abram asked, how can I really be sure that what you're telling me is true? And then God's response is, go get some animals. You know, that's what I usually say to someone when they say, prove it to me. I say, go get some animals. <clears throat> Go get some animals. Now, that, that response, of course, sounds weird to us, but did you notice that Abram doesn't seem to think it's weird? You see that, because after Abram gets the animals, he knows exactly what to do, right? God doesn't give him any more instruction. He gets the animals, and then automatically, it just says, he cuts them up, and he puts them, the, the halves, opposite to each other in parallel, so clearly, this is something that's familiar to Abraham. This, this is not new, right? This is, this is something that in Abram's culture was familiar. So what was that? Well, in that culture, this ritual was a way of making a solemn promise. Now you might wonder, okay, why in the world would this be a way of making a solemn promise? Well, you have to remember that in those days, they didn't have a lot of the tools of social order that we have now. Uh, and today, you know, if, if somebody does something illegal, you can call the police, right? And law enforcement come and take care of it. But in Abram's day, that wasn't something you could do. And if somebody violated the terms of a business agreement that you had, then you could take those 
Today, if somebody violates the terms of a business agreement that you have, you can take them to court for that, right? And you can have a lawyer represent you and defend you in court. But in Abrams' day, that wasn't really something that was available to you. So if you were going to make an agreement with somebody, you had a sense even more so than today, much more so than today, that you needed assurance that the person you were entering into the agreement with was going to follow through, right? You needed to be confident that that was the case. And people's word was just as untrustworthy as it is today, right? People were just as sinful then as they are now. And so people needed something extra to make them feel confident and assured in an agreement. And so, to show how serious people were about, taking, about keeping their word, people would take some animals, which were costly, right? Animals were important. They were one of the ways that you survived, that you made money. People would take some animals, and they would cut them in half, like Abram does here, and then they would line them up opposite each other. And what each party would do is they would announce what their promise was, what they were pledging to do, and then they would walk through the pieces. And when they were walking through the pieces, what they were communicating is, may I be like these animals if I break this promise. It was a way of saying, keeping this promise is as important as my own life. I will die before I break this promise. And this kind of ritual had a lot of power in those days because people really believed in the idea that you could be cursed. You know, today we, we tend to have a very scientific, naturalistic way of viewing the world. Uh, but for lack of a better term, people had more magical thinking in those days. So they thought if you, if you take animals, valuable animals, and you shed their blood, you rip them apart, and you walk through those pieces, and you make a pledge, if you then break your word, you're bringing some bad karma on you and your family, right? So when people did this, both parties had this, this sense, I can trust the other person because they are going to this length to prove uh, that their word is trustworthy. I've heard that this ritual is actually where the language of cutting a deal comes from. You know how people say, let's... Let's cut a deal. I don't know for sure if that's true. I can't prove it, but it makes sense to me. This is the initial, the original cutting a deal. So Abram asks for reassurance that God is actually going to do what he says. And God says, basically, all right, let's do what people in your culture do to prove, your, prove their word. Let's get some animals. So Abram does that, and then he arranges this promise-making ceremony. And then what comes next sounds very ominous, doesn't it? Uh, we're told that Abram falls into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness comes over him. Now, the exact meaning of these words, unfortunately, has been lost to time. We don't, we don't know for sure. But from what I understand... This is saying that God put Abram in a special state of consciousness so that he could receive this revelation. The, the NIV translation says a deep sleep, but the Hebrew can also be translated as a trance. 
And while Abram was in this unusual state of consciousness, the holy presence of God became so thick and so near that it was scary. It felt like a thick and dreadful darkness. And in that state, God, Abram heard God announcing his promises. And part of what he said is that, uh, that Abram would have descendants and that those descendants would end up enslaved in a country that was not their own and that they would be enslaved for 400 years. He's even specific in how long it's going to be. But that eventually God is going to bring them out of that. He's going to set them free. And when they come out, not only are they going to be set free, but they're going to acquire great wealth in the process. And of course, that does happen, right? We see that in the next book of the, book of the Bible. The story of the exodus out of Egypt is the fulfillment of these promises here. And God also promises Abraham that he's going to live a long life and that after four generations, his descendants are going to return to the land that was promised. So God announces all of these promises and then we're told that a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch pass between the pieces. And what this represents is God himself walking through the pieces and making this Solemn promise, if I don't keep my word, may I become like these animals. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, why does God represent himself with a, a fire pot and a blazing torch? Well, I tried. I did. But this is another detail where I have to confess, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Uh, some people say that a fire pot, which is another word for an oven, uh, is a symbol of God's righteous and holy judgment, the fire that consumes, and that the blazing torch is a symbol of his guidance, you know, that leads us through the dark. But those are guesses. The truth is we don't know. But we do know that God is making an effort to speak to Abram in a way that he'll understand. Right? He's using the cultural forms of his day. This, this ceremony is something that Abram would understand. So I think we have every reason to assume that the symbol of the fire pot and the blazing torch would be something that Abram would appreciate and understand. Maybe we can't today, but for Abram, it was what he needed. Now, if you guys think you know what they represent, tell me, okay? Because I'd love to hear what your theories are. That's, that's fun. Um, but we don't know for sure. But what we, what we do know for sure is that the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch are supposed to represent the presence of God. And they show us that God passes through the pieces. God makes a solemn promise through this ritual of Abram's culture. And what I want us to realize is that's incredible. <laughs> that's really amazing. You know, when I prepare a message, a lot of the time I'm thinking about one of these passages for quite a while, and I, I get so into it that sometimes I'm not even moved by it. If, it might be hard to understand. Maybe you guys know what I'm talking about, but you're so near to it that you stop being affected by it. And this morning, as we we're sitting here singing worship songs, suddenly this just hit me how amazing this is, and, and I, I felt moved by it. So it, there's something about it that's so 
so beautiful because in Abram's day, people didn't think of the gods as making promises to you. Okay, the gods were thought of as angry, vengeful beings who you needed to appease. The gods don't make promises to you. You make promises to the gods. You, you hope that you can uphold them, and you hope that if you uphold them, the gods will uh, uphold their end of the bargain and give you a nice long life and good crops and, and children and all that. But in this story, this god, Abram's god, is so different from the ancient Near Eastern deities. What's being communicated here is radical for this time. This is a God who makes promises to his people. This is a God who invites people to trust him, not just to appease him, to trust him, right? This is a God who has a plan to bless all nations on the earth, not just one particular tribe. Remember, God had told Abram that, that he would bless all people groups. So this God isn't just local, parochial God. This God is universal. This God is different. You know, and it, it would have been strange enough in those days to think of a God as participating in a promise-making ritual. But do you know what's even crazier, even weirder? Is that God makes a promise, but Abram doesn't. Did you notice that? God goes through the pieces, but he puts Abram in a state where he can't even walk through the pieces. His deep sleep, his, his trance. And, and what that means is that the promises God is making, they're unconditional. Abram can't mess this up. They don't depend on what Abram does or doesn't do. They depend on God. Now, sometimes God does make conditional promises. If you do this, I will do this. That's a conditional promise. There's quite a few of them in the Bible. But the promises that God has made to Abram so far, they're not conditional, right? God doesn't say, I will give you offspring if you're good. You know, he doesn't say, I will make you into a great nation if you uphold your end of the bargain. No, he just says, I will do these things. I will make you into a great nation. I will give you this land. I will bless those who bless you. I will bless all the nations through you. So what can we take away from this bizarre story? Well, I have two simple takeaways for us. Number one, our God is a God who makes promises. Our God is a God who makes promises. When you think about it, that is a, radical, a radically humble thing for a God to do. This is the creator of the universe, right? God made the world so he can do whatever he wants with it. But with his freedom, he chooses to make promises to the world that he's created. Promises that restrict his freedom. That tells us something about how good God really is. What God is like. And then two, what God really wants from us is to trust him with his promises. Now, you could argue, well, of course, God wants us to be moral and, and to strive to be holy and all that. And yes, that's true. But the, the bedrock foundational thing that God wants from us, the primary thing, is for us to trust him. 
It's to trust his promises. Remember, after God showed Abram the stars uh, and said that his descendants would be as numerous as those stars, it immediately said in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And that verse shows us how much God values us trusting in his promises. It says that because Abram believed, God considered him righteous. Now, we know from last week, right, Abram is definitely not perfect. Uh, There were times where his faith faltered, times where he acted selfishly, times where he was deceitful. And it's not that God approved of any of that behavior, but even so, Abram's belief in God's promises was enough for him to be considered in right relationship with God. And the same is true for us. We don't have to be perfect to be in right relationship with God. What we have to do is trust in God's promises. Now, that raises the question, well, what does that mean for us today? What are the promises that we should be trusting in? And we talked about this a little last week. And if you remember, we identified three things that we should all be trusting in God for. Uh, Presence power, and permanence. And if you missed the message last week, I really encourage you to to go back and listen to it so that you can get a better explanation of what those three things are. But just to give a quick review, uh, by presence, I mean that God promises that he will always be with us, uh, and nothing can separate us from his love. God is not some passive observer of our lives, like some guy watching TV. He is actively involved, supporting us, encouraging us, guiding us, in a sense, suffering with us. He is truly with us. And then by power, I mean that he promises to give us strength. And not necessarily strength to just do anything that we want, but strength to persevere and to find strength and and peace, even in the midst of hard times. He, he, he promises us a power to transcend our circumstances so that our circumstances aren't completely controlling us, but that we can rise above those circumstances. He promises us power to love and power to serve. And then by permanence, I mean that he promises us eternal life. Okay, death makes life tragic, but God wants us to trust that just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we too can look forward to resurrection. And here's something so important for us to recognize, something that I didn't emphasize too much last week, which is that the reason we can trust in these promises is because of Jesus. He is the reason that we can count on those promises because Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, who gives us that sense of God's presence, who equips us with that power. And of course, Jesus is the one who defeated death by offering his life on the cross and rising from the dead. And it's through Jesus that we can have confidence that God really does keep his promises. You know, throughout the Old Testament, our our promise-making God makes a lot of promises. And his people wait a long time for those promises to be fulfilled. But when Jesus comes, it's as if he has a checklist of all the promises, and he's moving through it, checking the boxes. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, the Apostle Paul says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes 
in Christ. God checks the box next to those promises, yes, through Jesus. This is getting done. I'm accomplishing this. So what does it mean to believe in God's promises today? Well, it means to believe in Jesus because he's the one who fulfills those promises. Abram believed what God said, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it works similarly for us today. When we believe in Jesus, that is credited to us as righteousness. That belief puts us in a right relationship with God. When God passed through those animal pieces, he was saying, I would rather die than break my promises. And Jesus proves that God meant that, right? Because God really was willing to go to the point of death to keep his promises. Because Jesus, who is God in the flesh, offered his life on our behalf to fulfill the promises of God. Jesus' death and resurrection fulfill God's promise to defeat the devil. Jesus' death and resurrection fulfill the promise to bless people of all nations. Jesus' death and resurrection fulfill the promise to swallow up death forever. Jesus' death and resurrection fulfill the promise to replace hard human hearts with hearts that can love. And what, what he asks from us is so simple. Trust the promise. Trust in Jesus. Believe, and it will be credited to you as righteousness. And don't put the cart before the horse. Yes, it is important to do good things. It is important to live righteously. But if you really want to live righteously, here's where you start. You trust in the promises of God. You trust that Jesus really is enough. Now, I don't know if you have ever taken that step to put your trust in Jesus. I know many of you have, but I don't know the details of all of your lives. Um, and I want to encourage you this morning, if you've never taken that simple step of just saying, Jesus, I want to choose to put my trust in you. I want to choose to believe that the promises of God are fulfilled through Jesus. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do it. And it's, this, it's a simple thing. All you need is a, a sincere heart and to pray to God and ask him. That's all it takes. And you might say, well, I don't fully understand what's happening. I don't fully understand what this all means. And you know what? Nobody does. <laughs> but when you, when you pray that prayer, you begin an adventure of life with God, of growing and learning over the rest of your life. But it starts with that willingness, that willingness to say, God, I want to trust you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we come before you now, and of course we are in different places in our spiritual journey. Some of us have known you uh, for a long time. Some of us have been trusting in Jesus uh, for as long as we can remember. Some of us may have trusted you at some point, but we've, we've fallen out of that, and we're not sure what we think. And some of us may have never decided to put our trust in you. 
Lord, I pray this morning, uh, wherever we are, that we, we would desire to put our trust in you and that we would do it, Lord. That we would, we would look at this story and we would realize that it reveals a promise-making and a promise-keeping God who is willing to sacrifice everything in order to fulfill his promises. And we know, not just from this story, but from the whole story of the Bible, that the promises you make, Lord, are, are to restore us, to renew us, to forgive us of our sins, and to give us eternal life, to free us from the curse of death, uh, to free us from our own sinful nature that is so destructive both to ourselves and to those around us. Lord, you're committed to remaking us and, and renewing us and, and raising us from the dead. And Lord, we want to trust you. We want to walk with you like Abraham walked with you. We give our trust to you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.